Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. My name is Matthew Tilly, and I'm the pastor of McConnell Road Baptist, and we're glad that you've joined us for this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, uh, which is where we're going to be for the next few more, uh, few more weeks, uh, Matthew chapter 18, as we go through this, uh, what I call the Jesus's theology of forgiveness. Um, I believe it is largely, probably not completely, but largely encapsulated in this chapter, chapter 18. He really addresses it from, from a lot of different angles. Uh, we're just going to look at, um, ends up being about four verses here, chapter 18, verse 6 through 9. We're going to look at those verses. We're going to understand what it addresses here. But I, I, I want to tell you that as we're going through this, one, one of the things that I'm conscious of is that I'm thinking about forgiveness. I'm often thinking about how I need to forgive other people. But Jesus doesn't start with how I need to forgive other people. He starts about with me needing forgiveness myself. That's where he starts, and that's where we have to understand that baseline before we go any further. He says, let's read here together in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. He says, but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me? Now he talks about these little ones, and you remember he gave that illustration, he pulls a little child aside and he says, you need to be a little one like this. He's using this illustration of a little child, but what we should really read when we read little ones, he's talking about his children, Christians. I, I know I may not look like a little one, but I am one of his little ones. And if you're a Christian, you're one of his little ones. So we are his little ones. That's who he's got in there. He says, whoso, uh, excuse me, yeah, whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into, the li into life halt or maimed rather than to have two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal or rather everlasting fire and if thy eye offend thee pluck it out and cast it from thee for it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hell fire let's take a moment to pray and ask our lord to help us as we study his word together father please we, we, we really do want to understand what your scripture has to say. I, I really do want to preach what you have here. I, I do not need to introduce people to my theology of forgiveness. As flawed as that would be, I, they don't need that. They need to hear from you, Lord. They need to hear what you have to say. And I pray that you will use me to mouth those words, to express them, to proclaim them, to exclaim them as necessary. But Lord, I pray that your people will hear your words and your Holy Spirit will apply it to their hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' theology of forgiveness, like I said, doesn't start with addressing what other people have done to you or what they have done wrong. He begins with what you have done wrong. He begins with your offenses. 
Forgiveness is important. I think we would understand that as Christians. I think I even told you last time, and I do believe this, that forgiveness is the linchpin of Christianity. It's the underpinning. Without forgiveness, I don't have Christianity. With, with Christianity, I'm introduced to forgiveness. So it is necessary, it's important, but it is necessary for one reason. Do you know why forgiveness is necessary? Because we have sin. I need to be forgiven because I've done wrong. It's easy and natural, it's normal, for me to be focused on getting what I think I deserve, getting my retribution, getting my, maybe, maybe even if I'm a nice person, even getting reconciliation, this person has done wrong, so I want to get things right with them. Or to find somehow, sometimes we talk about this idea of getting closure on a situation. So we, that's my natural inclination. I want those things to happen. I want to bring them to a head. But doing that because of something that's been done wrong to me, it actually misses the point of all of this. This really isn't about you and making you feel better. You see, what Jesus here is talking about is he cares about his little ones. He cares about them, and he wants to protect them at all costs. He died for them, after all. That's what Jesus did. He died for his church. And if Jesus died for them, he shed his blood for them, he went through all of that for you. I think he wants to protect his investment. It's important. You are important to him. And here's the thing is, I, I know that sometimes we are his sheep. We are the sheep of his pasture. We're all God's sheep. Sometimes the sheep bite each other. That's what happens. Sometimes they do. And I think, I, I know that I think that everybody else is the problem, right? Jesus needs to protect me from all you bad people out there. That's, that's the way we think. And so do y'all. Y'all think the same thing. You think, well, all these other bad people. I read this this weekend. It says, the less aware you are of your own sins, the more outraged you'll be by the sins of others. You ever thought about that? Why is it you're so upset about what everybody else is doing? Why? Because you think you're pretty good. You think you're doing okay. Look at, look at how horrible they are. And, and Jesus is turning in this picture into us because he... He's telling us, listen, before you'll ever truly be a forgiver, before you can ever really fully be a forgiver, you need to understand you need forgiveness first. You need to safeguard, you need to safeguard yourself against sin because, by the way, you need forgiveness and you need somebody to stop you from keeping on sinning. Because left to your own devices, Ephesians chapter 2 tells me that we were born in sin, we want to sin, and we sin every chance we get. That's what we do. That's my natural inclination. I need somebody to forgive me of those sins and to put me in a position to stop me from sin so I won't keep hurting people because that's what sin does. It hurts people. Every sin I've ever committed, whether I am aware of it or not, it hurts other people. It hurts people. That's what's wrong with sin. So before I can ever truly be a forgiver to forgive you of what you've wrongly done to me, I need to understand, listen, my sin's pretty bad. My sin needs to stop. My sin needs to be forgiven. He tells us in verse 6, he says, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. That's just a phrase there, but he's calling, to the, calling to our attention to the fact that your sin... When it happens, it affects other people. He uses a term here, the word here, offend. And essentially the sense of that word is not just that they got, you know, <laughs> y'all ain't never apologized like this, I'm sure, but I'm sorry you got offended by what I said. 
That's not an apology, by the way, just so you all know. That's not an apology. I'm sorry, you took it the wrong way. That's not what he means by the word offend. He actually means that you caused someone to sin. That's what the sense of that word in this, in this passage is, that we are actually causing them to sin. We have scandalized them to the point that we've tripped them up. We're actually operating the way the devil operates. We're tempting them. We're putting them in a position so that they want to sin, that they, their only reaction to what we've done is to sin. Again, who are these little ones he's talking about? Primarily our Christian family. But, but I want you to think about what that could also mean, those little ones, those weak and the defenseless in, in our congregations, in our communities. What are we doing that may be causing them to sin because of our sin? Those marginalized, those that are on the outside of our communities, what are we doing that may cause them to sin? Because what you do and what you say has an impact on other people. This is, I think, something that we, that we miss in, in this idea of sin. When I sin, I feel bad about my sin because I'm ashamed. Somebody caught me. I got in trouble. That's what we often think about. But Jesus says here, look out, watch out causing my others to sin, causing others in the congregation to sin. He says, I want you to watch for that. We, in this, in this church, can I just make it personal to us? What you do and what you say has an impact on the next generation. We need to be very conscious, and I'm just going to go ahead and call a spade a spade if I can on this. We look around in our congregation, we have some very young children. We have a few that are about to graduate on to the next stage of life, right at the, at the fringe of high school and college. But we don't have a whole lot in the younger years, the younger adult years, in the 20s. I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. Y'all know, because I've only been here for a couple of years, but there may be reasons for that. There may be no reason for that. I don't know. But the point is, we need to do some soul-searching and say, is there something that we have done or we are continuing to do that is causing those people to not want to participate in our church? What are we doing that's causing them to sin? By the way, if they're in sin, let's don't get it wrong. If, they're, if, they, if they are not part of a church, if they are not a Christian, they're in sin. We understand that. That's what Christian people, they join up with a church. They're part of a church. But if they're not, they're in sin. But, but let's talk, let's, remember, we're not talking about their sin. We're talking about my sin. We're talking about your sin. What are we doing that's causing them to sin? I think we have to think about this with new Christians. When I always am convicted when I think about, well, I'm not seeing a whole lot of people saved. We're not seeing a lot of people come to Christ. Well, why is that? And I don't know all the reasons for that. That's between them and God. But sometimes I wonder, and I just wonder this aloud, is there something that I'm doing as a Christian that may be causing somebody to sin that God may say, listen, I don't want to bring one of my little ones into your congregation because you're going to lead them astray. Is that, and again, I'm asking you to, to, to look into your own heart. Is that what's going on there? If the answer is no, that's between you and God. You ain't got to impress me. But if it is a problem, we need to address the problem. Are we doing things, saying things that hurt those with a weak conscience, those with our neighbors, those acquaintances around us? Because what happens is whenever we do things that offend, we are doing this, we're causing them to sin because we are living selfishly. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. Okay, let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we just don't know any better. And we need the Holy Spirit of God to convict us and correct us and guide us. And he does. He's a good, he's a good God. He does that. He's so kind and patient with us. Sometimes it's out of malice. I, I don't know if I'm talking to anybody particular in this congregation, but I do know in churches, 
in the world, this does happen. You get some evil-hearted people who do some mean things. In the name of God, Lord, help us. We lead people towards sin. We create sinful desires in people. We create doubts. We create fears in their hearts. We hurt them and we upset them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23 that the gospel is a stumbling block. It's the same idea as offense here. The same word as offense, same idea. He says the gospel is a stumbling block. And the fact is, it is. It's, a very, it's, a very, uh, it's foolishness, he says in that same passage, to the world. Of course, we know it's the power of God unto salvation, but the point is that the world looking at the gospel, they say, well, what in the world are y'all talking about? That doesn't make sense to me, because that's what, it's the devil has blinded their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. They need the, the, the light of the glory of Christ shown into their hearts. That's, they need that. But the gospel is an offensive thing, if you think about it, that God had to die, God had to bleed, that's what I have to believe in. He said that, that, that it's a stumbling block. And we understand that when we preach the gospel, there are going to be some people who get upset about that. But the problem is, Christians, who are they are the ones who are people are getting upset. They're not getting upset about the gospel. They're getting upset at the Christians and the way they're acting, that they and themselves have become the stumbling block. Those people are the ones who are causing other people to sin. That's what he's talking about there. The gospel is a stumbling block. It is an offense, but Christians should not make themselves a stumbling block. So your sin, first, it affects other people. But if he goes on to verse 6, he says that those people who offend one of his little ones, it would be better, it were better, he says, for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. He says the best thing this man could do is to go ahead and kill himself. I can't think of any other outcome. You put a millstone around your neck, a big old rock around your neck, uh, as the, uh, the mobsters would say, you know, give him some concrete shoes. I mean, that's essentially what he's talking about doing here. I, I don't think there's any other outcome than you go to the bottom and you're dead. So what Jesus is saying is if you're going to cause my little ones to sin, you might as well go ahead and jump off into the ocean. You might as well. It's better to kill yourself. Why? Because there's something worse coming for you if you don't, you just need to stop. It's better to go ahead and kill yourself because it's something worse coming for you. I want you to think about it this way. These are Jesus' little ones. What would you want to do, whether it's a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew of yours, somebody that you, a little child that you love dearly, somewhere to come along and actually hurt that little one in a way that would be unmentionable, in a way that would not be imaginable? but they would come along and hurt them. I'm not necessarily asking you what would you do because I don't know that any of us really know what we would do. I'm saying what would you want to do? You can imagine. The imagination might even be rolling right now. Here's what I would do. Here's what I'd like to do. Here's what my mind would be set to do. And, and some of those things, let's don't talk about them because <laughs> some of those things would be pretty violent and pretty gory and pretty ugly, would they not? In fact, I'd be surprised if they weren't. Because I can tell you that that's where my imagination goes. You try to do something to those that I love, what I would want to do. Now, I don't know what I'd actually do, but what I'd want to do is pretty ugly. Now, I want you to think about this. What would Jesus do? What is Jesus going to do to those who hurt his little ones? Romans 12, 19 says, As vengeance is mine, I will repay. Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 6, there's an interesting scene there in heaven 
you've got the martyrs, sort of this, this, this uh, roof is peeled off, and there's the martyrs that are out of all of history. They're, they're there, and they're, and they're praying, and they're calling out to God, and they say, God, would you please give us vengeance? We've been killed in your name. Revenge us. And Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17 says, The great day of wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Jesus says, I got you. Don't you worry. The point is, you cause one of Jesus' little ones to hurt. You create, them, you create in them a desire for sin. You cause them to stumble. You'll carry the shame and the guilt of that, depending on exactly what you've caused them to do. And there have been things like uh, child abuse and molestation and things like that that have happened. There will likely be, as there should be, social and legal ramifications for those things. But those are, like he said, you might as well just go ahead and jump off in an ocean because it's going to get worse before it gets better. There are some temporal consequences, like I said, social, legal. There will be some burial consequences. I, I actually believe this, and if I'm wrong, may the Lord prove me wrong, but I do believe that there are people who are genuinely Christians who have continued to hurt the people of God, to cause people to sin, to lead them astray by their lives, by their, their preaching, by their teaching, that God just says, I'm going to go ahead and take you out of here. They're no longer on this earth because of that. And I dare not suggest that I know who those people are and what that point is, but I do believe that God does do that, that he will take people home. I also believe, particularly those that are not Christians, there is eternal consequences in hell. But even for Christians, there are eternal consequences that there are rewards that we would be eligible for, if I can use that term. That because of us causing others to sin, that we are stripped of those rewards. That opportunity to praise God is not there because of that. You cause a little one to sin, there are consequences for it. Your sin deserves punishment. I want you to go down to verse 7 with me. He says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. This word woe is an interesting word. To contrast it, just to give you an idea of how, how to think about this word, to give you a contrast of it, if you were to go to Matthew chapter 5, and you know Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says, Blessed are the... And he's got a bunch of different things that are blessed. There's blessings. There's, I think we might have might even heard people say it means happiness. And it's just sort of a, it's a, it's a good thing. This is good. Yay. Wonderful. Blessed. That's what he's using. In a sense, the opposite word of blessed is woe. It's the anti-blessing. It's the not-blessing. So he's saying here in verse 7, woe unto the world, the opposite of blessings unto the world because of offenses, of causing people to sin or temptation. He says, for it must needs be that offenses come. He says, the world is full of temptation. And if y'all don't know this, you're just not paying attention. The world is full of temptation. The world is full of prompts to sin. The devil doesn't have a whole lot of worry. He doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, of work to do. He just sort of just rolls out of bed in the morning and he can tempt me. In fact, sometimes I don't even have to, he don't even have to bother. I'm already tempting myself. I'm already way down the path. I'm on top of it. So the point is this world is full of these things. It's full of things to trip us up. And he says, woe, because that's the way the world is. But it goes on to say here at the end, almost if you will, could I, I'm just going to add this, my own interpretation here of 
double woe, double woe to him, to that man, by whom the offense has come. In other words, you've got a whole world full of terrible things, awful sin. You don't have to look very far to find temptation. And shame on you if you create new temptations to put in front of people. That's what he's saying here. Why in the world should you, and of all people, and he's talking to, I believe this chapter, whole chapter of 18, he is primarily talking to the church. He's primarily talking to Christian people. He's talking to his disciples. This is an inside, a family conversation. He says, it's bad enough that the world is causing us to sin. Why in the world y'all want to bring that into the church house? Why do you want to bring that into the family? Why in the world, is, why it's so disappointing to see it out there. You could talk and we could talk all night long about the troubles and the challenges and the problems in this world and we'd be right about it. But isn't it disappointing when you hear about one of those things that happens with a brother offending, if I can use Jesus' word, causing to sin another brother or a sister for that matter? Wouldn't that be, isn't that awful? And God does not treat lightly those people, even his people, who hurt his little ones. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. If you think the world's, God's going to judge this world, and yes, he will, you better believe he's going to whoop his youngins that do the same stuff. That's what he does. When we callously offend, and I use that word in the sense that we talk about it in today's world, where we hurt people's feelings, when we callously offend people, when we mindlessly gossip about people, when we selfishly block other people's spiritual progress and, and hopes and dreams, when we lustfully pursue things that make us feel good, whether we're talking about the sexual pursuits or whether we're just talking about our greedy pursuits, when we greedily hoard our resources and no other, no other people can use those, those things, and when we hatefully spew the venom that is in our heart because we're bitter or we're upset or we're mad about something. That sin is not going to have the blessings of God. It's a shame. It is a crying shame that God's people, these things are named among God's people. And we better expect that it'll get God's shameful lament. So your sin affects other people. Your sin deserves God's punishment. And your sin is a shame. So what do we need to do about it? Well, we need to address it. We need to do something about it. We need to address that sin. He gives us two extreme illustrations in verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, he talks about cutting off your hand or your foot. In verse 9, he talks about plucking out an eye. He says, listen, you might as well just cut off one of your limbs. You might as well take out your eye. He says it's better to have, and I want you to think about what those things involve. I can't, I got a little splinter in my hand yesterday. I was working outside. I got a little, it was a briar that got in my finger. It's still hurting me now. I mean, it's my little finger. It's hurting right now. And, and I can't, that, that bothers me, a little bitty poke in my finger. Couldn't imagine taking a, 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 a axe and chopping off one of my limbs. I mean, just think about it. I mean, I, I just know how your body works and, 
it's, it's not meant to be separated that way. I mean, when you have to have amputations for diabetes and other things like that, they have very precise surgical procedures and things that they need to do, and even that is it's kind of a sketchy thing as it is, but just to chop this off in the ancient world particularly, just to do this yourself, some do-it-yourself do it at-home amputation, I mean, it would be gory and grisly, and the, and the resulting amputation, the, the, the stub that would be left there would probably get infected, would definitely be painful. I'm trying to paint you a picture that it's, a, it's not, a, not, a, not a pleasant thing. This is not a little clean, little, like, like changing your socks, you know, taking your socks off and throwing them into the laundry. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's hurtful and permanent and gross. It's gonna, he said it's better to be permanently and grossly handicapped than to assault one of God's little ones. The pain, the loss of use, the infection that would ensue, the, the permanent disability that would come from that, the fact that if you were to really take out one of your eyes and, or to take off one of your limbs, you would probably, there would work that you might need to do. You may not be able to do it, especially in the ancient world. I mean, almost everything that they would have done would have been sort of manual labor, as we would call it today. And some of the jobs that we even have today would not be able to be done with this kind of disability. He says it's better to take that kind of loss than to face the judgment that God has for people who hurt his little ones. Romans 13, verse 14, gives us some instructions on what we need to do. It says that we need to put on Jesus and stop making provisions for our flesh. Ultimately, my question to you as you think about these illustrations, what is it that you're willing to cut off, to prevent, to stop, at some cost. I'm not suggesting these are easy things to do. That's the point of these illustrations, that they're hard to do. They're things that may put you at a, at a disability to others. But what are you willing to do in order to stop the damage that you're causing? As I've suggested, the next generation depends on elders, and I mean that in the sense of people that are older than them, who are willing to brutally deal with their sin. I'm afraid, as I've heard too many reports across the country of churches in which it's the older, feet, older folks who, in the name of trying to protect the church or protect a family, they've not brutally addressed the sin in the church. I don't want us to be that church. I don't want us to have that damage. I don't want that. We have to be willing. Can I say not just as a church, but individually, we need to be brutally honest about our own sins. Because... Those younger people, when they see something, who are they looking at? They're going to look at me. They're going to look at you. Those new converts that the Lord will bless us with that are saved and are walked through the waters of baptism, they depend on other believers who are mercilessly dealing with their own sin. They're going to look at you and say, that's what a mature Christian looks like, and how dare we give them the message that a mature Christian is okay with their own sin? Congregations like this one need pastors who will selflessly deal with their own sin at the, state, at, the, at the risk of their reputations, at the risk of their offerings, at the risk of their benefits, at the risk of anything that may come with the fringe benefits, if I can use that phrase, of the office. They need to be willing to say, listen, I've got this sin, and I'm going to deal with that sin mercilessly. 
Each of us needs a church family who will deal with sin without reservation. Not saying, well, we're going to deal with this sin because this is a less uh, important member of our congregation. But this person over here, they, they, they kind of give a lot of money, so we're not going to deal with their sin. No, no, no. We need a congregation that's willing to deal with all sin in our congregation and deal with that. In your own soul, in your own life, your eternal soul deals, uh, depends on your ability and your willingness to unashamedly look your sin in the eye and say, that sin needs to be forgiven. Can I be plainer on that? You may say, well, I've been a member of this church since we signed the new Constitution and bylaws. I've been a member of this church all the way back to whenever it was you came here. Well, that's wonderful, and I'm grateful for your contribution to this church, but your membership in this church does not mean that you are without sin. And if your sin has never been put under the blood of Jesus Christ, you're carrying the weight of that sin. And I don't believe that believers, Christians, are ever in danger of hellfire, but those who have never accepted Christ, who are not Christians, absolutely are. And I want to encourage those. I, I know I'm talking to my Sunday night folks, and I know that we're, we, we all have a, a testimony of salvation, so I'm, I, I'm acknowledging that, but I'm also not giving you a free pass. You don't get a ticket to heaven because you come to church on Sunday night. You get a ticket to heaven, if I may use that crude language. You, use, you get that because of the blood of Jesus Christ and his application to your sins. So until and unless you're able to say, I have sinned, Lord, and my sin needs to be forgiven by you, until you get to that point, your eternal soul is in danger of hellfire. But I would also say that even if you are a believer, and Jesus has covered your sin, if you are continuing to flirt with your sin, you're continuing to kind of keep it around in a corner of your heart, you're in danger of the chastisement of the Lord. I don't know what form that's going to take. I really don't. I don't dare to presume. But just know that God's not going to speak kindly of it. He's not going to like it. He's not going to let you go too long. Through the Spirit, do mortify, kill, kill the deeds of the body. Ye shall live. Now, 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 listen here. Now, listen what it says there. If you will continue in your sin and continue to make provision for the flesh, spiritual death is going to come. Physical death is going to come. Death to your relationships. Death to your relationship with God. All of those things, there's going to be a pale of death over your life. But through the Spirit of God who has been put in every believer, you've been given the power to defeat that sin not just knock it on the ropes, not just make it a little dizzy, not just make it a little unconscious, but to literally mortify, to kill it, to put it to death. You have that ability, not because you're so smart or so strong, but because you have the Holy Spirit of God. Now, now again, I'll go back to what I said before. If you're not saved, if Jesus is not your Savior, if your blood, Jesus' blood has never been applied to your life, if that is not where you are, then none of this makes any sense. But the minute that you put your faith in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you now, if ye through the Spirit will mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. 
That will change and transform your family. That will change and transform your relationships. And oh my goodness, what will that do to McConnell Road Baptist Church if we had a whole bunch of people who were less worried about, well, that one over there hurt my feelings and that one over there did this to me. And we would be actually crushed and confused by our own sin and say, God, I've got this sin, but you've given me the Holy Spirit to kill this sin in my life. Would you help me to do that? I mean, do we do that? I'm not going to say people ain't going to hurt you because they are. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But let me tell you, I think it'll eliminate a whole lot of mess. It'll eliminate a whole lot of mess. You want to know how to forgive? Make sure you're one of his little ones. And then let the Lord work in your heart. That's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. Thank you for joining us for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures, the teaching and preaching podcast from McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Pastor Matthew Tilley, and I'm so glad you joined us here. But if you'd like to learn more about the church, please visit us online at mcconnellroadbaptist.org.